From Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast for entrepreneurs that inspires and elevates innovative products to their full potential. I'm Danielle Kahn, the head of Lift Labs, and this first episode features a conversation with Nolan Bushnell. Of the 20 companies he's founded, Nolan is best known as the creator of Atari and Chuck E. Cheese, two super fun things I grew up with. In this episode, you'll hear the story of how Nolan launched the consumer video game industry with his invention of Pong. He'll also provide useful insight on iteration and early customer feedback. The discussion is led by Sam Schwartz, the Chief Business Development Officer here at Comcast. We join them both now, live, at Lift Labs. I'm thrilled to be here with the father of the video gaming industry, Nolan Bushnell, best known as the founder of Atari, introducing Pong to the masses and bringing smiles to millions of kids at Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Time Theater. Really an incredible lifelong tinkerer, entrepreneur, business person. You started as an electrical engineer in Utah. You know, I think maybe you could tell us a little bit about your upbringing there. You know, in some ways, I've been a lifelong entrepreneur. And I was making crazy money selling the campus blotter. Yeah. You take a big piece of paper and you put the calendar of events at the university in the middle. And then you sell ads around it and you give it away at the beginning of each quarter or semester. And, you know, I was making good money, and, and but I didn't have any confidence that I would keep from spending it all. So I decided to get a summer job that was going to be fun at the amusement park. And it was minimum wage, and I always laughed at people who took minimum wage jobs. But I did it for a different reason. I just wanted to keep myself engaged. It wasn't about making money, it was about keeping me from my own worst enemy, myself. And I was pretty good at it, and they, two years later, they made me manager of the department, where I started to fundamentally understand the economics and the dynamics of business, and the arcade business. And so that, with my engineering degree, gave me the two pillars, the market, and the technology to build the first video game. And there's, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are technologists, they're engineers, they have a product vision, but the whole package, including the business sensibility, you know, is, is rarer. What, what, do you, what do you, I mean, is, is everybody built to be an entrepreneur? Or are there, you know, is there questions you can ask yourself to, to see whether you're qualified? I think that there are some people that really feel okay about striving to make a lot of money. Takes hard work, takes risk, takes striving. And somehow I always made that decision. Like in college, I always was running scams, or no, businesses. <laughs> <laughs> like, like if at the fraternity house, if somebody wanted to borrow 20 bucks, they'd come to me. And it was the oldest scam in the world, you know, 25 for 20. And so basically they'd have to pay it back when their 
parents gave them their allowance for that month, and I'd get 25, and that's loan sharking. <laughs> um, so before we talk about the move to California, um, one last thing about Utah. I know your father passed away when you were 15, I think. Um, and uh, it's always struck me that a lot of high-achieving people, President Clinton, President Obama, probably lots of other examples, have achieved a lot in their life when they lost their father when they were young. Is there something to that? Is there something in, in your background you think it's, it led, led you to be more resilient, more risk-taking? I think more resilient. I, I know that it changed my attitude about life, that... All of a sudden, at 15, I decided that I had to man up. You know, it was sort of the official end of childhood. And I had sisters, and I knew that any money that I got from my parent, my mother, would be at the expense of my sisters. And so I said, okay, I'm financially on my own from now on. And I had a little radio, uh, TV repair business going on at the time. And so I just upped the ante on that a little bit threw in with the local furniture store. And so I was the repairman for TVs, washing machines, what have you. Now, you gotta understand, I didn't have a clue about what I was doing. This is totally a lesson in fake it till you make it. Um, you then made the move to California. Um, uh, you know, some of the stories of the uh, founding of Atari are, are legends and the discovery of, of Pong and space wars and all that. What problems did you really have to solve to, to get Atari off the ground and to, and to make it the success that it was? The early video games were not von Neumann architecture. That is, there was no software. They were nothing more than very, very complex signal generators. And so, literally... The games were made with flip-flops, AND gates, Boolean algebra. You know, the game was built into the circuit, and that was the first one. The second one was that a lot of the people that we were selling to were scared to death of the electronics because they couldn't see what was happening. The toolkit of somebody who had a coin-operated game route was a pair of needle-nose pliers and a file because it was all relay-based. And then the invention of Pong, I, um, was that something very well thought through, customer-tested, or would you just sort of, aha, uh -huh, one day, there it is? My life has been driven by lucky accidents. The first game, which was computer space, started out as an attempt to duplicate Steve Russell's Space War. And space War was basically a software program that was shipped with every deck computer. Steve Russell was a graduate student at MIT and in 1962 coded up this game called Space War. And it was mesmerizing. I mean, I probably, it probably dropped my grade point at least, you know, a point. I probably went from the B's to C's those quarters that I was playing Space War because you'd break into the computer lab. The computers were on 24-7 and we'd go in at one or two leave at five when the, when the regular crew came in. And we'd play all night. That's not good for your grade point. <laughs> and, and was there something about Pong that, that you think caught people's attention back then? They just hadn't experienced that kind of game before? Was it the two-player no notion of it? What was it that you think led you know, to the... I don't know. I think that it was, it was really simple. 
We'd been in the business for a couple of years, and all of a sudden we heard, there's a company, Magnavox, who's joining the video game business. They've got a demo in Burlingame, you know, 30 miles up the road. So I went up, and I went in, and there was the Magnavox Odyssey. And I looked at it, and I said, boy, what a piece of crap. But then I looked around the room, and some people were having some fun with it. Had no score, had no sound, but it had a ball going back and forth. <laughs> They're having fun, it's simple. Serendipity would have it that my very first engineering hire was Al Alcorn that day. And I thought, this would be the ideal project. He could probably knock it out in a week. And we can clean it up. We can actually turn it into a good game. But I said, I, I don't think it's good enough for the market, but it'll be a good training project, project for him. And so I went back. I just described to Al what I wanted. I told him I had a big contract with General Electric. Lied. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> and, and he had it knocked out in a couple of weeks. Started out, it was a little bit boring. And then we started making tweaks to it. The first problem was you think that when you hit the paddle, angle incidence, angle reflection. But that means that the game is strictly defense, because all you're doing is returning the ball. Boring. So we decided to get rid of the angle incidence, angle reflection, and this was the big turning point. We changed it so that the angle of reflection was a function of where you hit on the paddle. Hit it in the middle, go straight back. As you hit it towards the very tip of the paddle, either one, that would be the most obtuse angle which was the hardest to return. So that turned out to be one of the great features of it because what you want to do is balance risk and reward. Take more risk. If you're successful, get a better reward. So in Pong, the, the shot that you wanted to give your opponent was that one right on the edge. But that's also where you would miss. It turned out that it was a great balance. I didn't know this at the time. I'm, this is just retrospect. Then we had the other problem. Once you got good at the game, it lasted too long. So that's when we started counting volleys and speeding it up. And then even then, when people got too good, I think it was at 20 volleys or 18, the paddle would cut in half. That would get them. So um, I think you've said that you're the only person who ever hired Steve Jobs. He actually worked at Atari, worked on, on, on Breakout. Maybe yeah. tell us a little couple anecdotes about what it was like to work with him. <laughs> Steve was difficult. <laughs> and, and I actually loved him. He had a great mind. And, uh, and he and I used to get into these deep philosophical things. I, I minored in philosophy in college, and, and so I was steeped in Hegel and Kant and Locke and Kierkegaard and all those things. And Steve was very fascinated with Eastern religion, you know, and he did all this. And so we often debated against Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy. And it's so funny, he was a determinist 
and I was a free will person. And we flipped at one point in time. I'd convinced him and he'd convinced me. And we, and we didn't... <laughs> and we didn't really know when that happened. It was, it was one of those crazy things. But anyway, um, Steve didn't abide fools gladly. And he would regularly offend almost everybody. And so to solve that, I put Steve on the night shift, the engineering night shift, which didn't exist. <laughs> but it was either that or, I, or, or everybody wanted me to fire him. But he was pretty capable and talented, and, and plus I liked him. Plus, it was a cheat, because I knew that he and Woz hung out. Now, Wozniak... He also worked at Atari, right? No, no, no. Oh, he didn't. He worked at Hewlett-Packard. Okay. But he would... By putting Steve jobs on the night shift, Steve Wozniak would come in after work. And, he, and so it was like getting two Steves for the price of one. <laughs> but not just any Steve. Wozniak is a true savant. I mean, the guy is truly brilliant on so many levels. And so they did break out for me in probably a tenth of the time that it would have taken the engineers and the rest of my company to do it. You ever try and hire Waz? Oh, yeah. Couldn't do it. Well, you got to understand, Waz was painfully shy. All the time that he worked at Atari without working at Atari, I never saw his, his eyes. You'd always look at his shoes. You know the old story, how do you tell a nerd extrovert? He looks at your shoes instead of his. <laughs> Um, you, uh, you wrote a book called Finding the Next Steve Jobs, uh, How to Find, Keep, and Nurture Talent. I want to talk about this a little bit. But in this book, which I've, uh, I've read, you talk a lot about the term creatives. Can you define for the group here, what, what is a creative to you? Because it really is weaved throughout the whole book. Creatives are people who think differently. And very often, I think that they have kept alive their inner child. Because so much of what happens as you age, you develop an ability to self-edit, which destroys your creativity. And in school, you're taught that there's a right answer. In life, there are many right answers, and creativity is about looking at things that have been done a particular way. I mean, there has been a societal right answer, but you've got to be able to say, no, there's a better way. There's a new answer. And that takes a little bit of interest. Have, have, you, have you witnessed models in medium and larger sized companies where innovation can work? What, either organizationally separating teams or particular types of cultures? How does that, any advice for those that are working in those kind of environments? A lot of times you have to repackage innovation. And you, you instead of saying it's a product, you say it's a test. We need to test this idea. And so you bite-size and you make it small and digestible. And the problem, what you're, what you're actually aiming at, is the innovator is not necessarily a good communicator. And by saying yes to the innovator who hasn't quite convinced everybody because they're not good at communication, as you walk up the mountain from idea to actuality, it's a communication process. And you start to see it, and you start to feel it, and you start saying, yeah, 
I could actually use that. Yeah, I understand it now. And that, that, that really works. So you've been involved with the founding of lots of companies, small companies, obviously. Um, what, is your, what is your process? You obviously are a tinkerer. You, uh, you know, you, you, you're well-traveled. You get to see lots of different industries and ideas. But when something comes to you, how do you, what, what's your process? What's the next step? I try to ask myself, what is the minimum viable product, the minimum viable service? And then I go through the single-page sell sheet. And, and I think if everybody did this, it would be really beneficial. The single-page sell sheet is 8.5 by 11, and the front of the page is a picture of the product or a description succinctly of what the service is. Then you have to have the price, and the whole idea of the front page is to get you to pick it up and read the back, where all the specs and all the details and everything are there. Now, now you've got that. You go to someone who is a likely purchaser of your product or service, and then you say to that person, do you want to buy this? Will you buy this? Let me get, you know, you know, and you have an order. Before you even prototype it. Yeah, you've, you've got it, but you've got a sell sheet. And so you see if you can get a sale. You, you go to Target or you go to Walmart and you say, how many of these things do you want? They say 10,000. Say, done. It's going <laughs> to take you. It's, you know, I'm, 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 unfortunately, currently I'm sold out. But I, <laughs> but I can get my factory going and, and restart and everything. And it's going to be about six months, but I'm your man. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Thank you, guys. Nolan's son, Tyler Bushnell, just finished the Lift Labs Accelerator with his company, Polycade, and will be joining us in a future episode. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. For more information and to find us on social, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes. This episode was produced and edited in Philadelphia by Kevin Shemidlin of Q9 Creative and Rec Philly with original music by Lee Rosevier and theme music by The Last Generation on Film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time.